So when you, I love the little click at the end. I don't know what to do with it. When you see that, how many of you have watched the Marie Kondo Netflix? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's this whole like clean, clean your house and does this robe spark joy? I can't help it. That's so good. Um, so we've, uh, we've been in a series and I just want to say that this is the exciting conclusion of this series, Things Jesus Never Said. And if you ever wonder, why do we speak in series? Well, we speak in series sometimes to keep a train of thought or uh, a set of conversations around a theme in scripture or an idea, or in some cases, a book of the Bible or a character in the scripture. And in this case, things Jesus never said. We've been looking at the words of Jesus. And so if you have been around the church for a while, sometimes the things Jesus said, people quote them and throw them out there all the time, and they somehow lose their impact. And so I find it helpful for me sometimes to re-engage what Jesus did say by looking at the power of what he did say because I'm also looking at what he didn't say, what he could have said, what I might have said, but what he didn't say. And in some versions of the scripture, when you go to the New Testament, it starts out with the Gospels, which are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell the teachings and stories of, and life of Jesus. And in some of the versions, the words that Jesus spoke are highlighted in red. And so we've been looking at those red letters, and I believe they possess an otherworldliness to them. They possess a power to them that is just phenomenal and uh, life-altering. And so today we're going to be jumping into uh, Luke 23. Uh, the title for today is Things Jesus Never Said, You Get What You Deserve. You get what you deserve. Now, in keeping with tradition of our other weeks, I find it kind of fun to ease into some of this. And so I'm going to give you three quick things that Jesus didn't say. You guys ready for it? Ready? Now, I need your engagement here. So when I say ready, you got to nod or amen or thumbs, thumbs up. Okay, there we go. All right, here we go. Things Jesus never said. Jesus never said, blessed are those who wear the latest threads, for theirs is the kingdom of God. All right? You guys are all looking fabulous today, but that's not what makes you inherit the kingdom of God. He never ever said, as often as you get together, eat delicious queso and chips in remembrance of me. Though if you're eating queso and chips after this, I would not turn that down. I don't think Jesus would either. I think he's for it. Um, but he didn't ask you to do that in remembrance of him. Or Jesus never said, come follow me, and no one will fight in the car on the way to weekend worship. I am only saying this because my family, my wife and I drive separate. <laughs> Confession. <laughs> um, we solved the problem. How many of, um, of you 
just show of hands. Let's just show of hands real quickly. How many of you battle feeling guilty? This is okay. Put your hand up. Put your hand up. Because the truth of the matter is, in some way, shape, or form, I think all of us battle feeling guilty. In fact, I did a little bit of research on it this week, and you know what I found out? 30% of Americans suffer from food guilt. Food guilt. And so the, the stat is more like 30% of what you eat, not 30% of Americans, but 30% of what you eat makes you feel guilty. And I don't know why that is, but as the stats in the study that I read shared with me, um, we have different feelings, and somehow it's different for men and women. I'm not making a note about it. I'm simply saying for men, it lasts about 20 minutes, and then we're over it. For ladies, a whole lot longer. I don't know why. I'm not presuming to understand. I'm not commenting. I'm just saying food guilt. Sometimes that's a real thing, especially when we bring donuts to church. Amen? Um, there's all kinds of guilt. There's like this general sense of guilt. Sometimes we don't want to let somebody down, so we say yes. We can't say no. Who's that person? I am that person. I say yes to things that I shouldn't say yes to or or. or have you ever met somebody that like, oh, I have to go home and let the dogs out? Like they feel guilty that their dog is somehow stuck at home without them. I mean, they're a dog. They're fine. But we feel guilty that our dog is not somehow roaming wild and free and, and whatnot. Or, um, or you ever met somebody who feels guilty because their closet is full, but they want more <laughs> stuff? I got nothing to wear, and I, okay, I'm not making indictments. I'm simply saying sometimes we can feel guilty when we fail, like, oh, I messed up. And sometimes we can feel guilty when we succeed. You ever had that happen? Like, I did well, but somebody else didn't, and that raises a whole other set of guilt. Sometimes we feel guilty for working too hard or not working hard enough. Um, there's mom guilt. This is a thing, all you moms, right? You, you, some, some of you moms, like, you don't, you feel guilty because you're leaving your kids and you're going to work and you don't feel like you're the mom. You should be, or the other way around, you're at home and you feel guilty because you're not bringing income or you have that perfect mom friend that is a Pinterest person. Do you know what I'm talking about? They show up at everything with homemade baked goods decorated perfectly. And not only did you show up not with baked goods, but you didn't bring your kid. And you like you notice that when you get there, like we can feel guilty for all sorts of things. There's Christian guilt, like I didn't pray enough, or I didn't serve enough, or heaven forbid, if you read the Bible app, you lost your Bible reading streak. That happened to me this week, and I felt guilty about it. I was like, I was at like a 63-day streak. It was terrible. Um, we have all kinds of guilt. Maybe you feel guilty when you take the Lord's name in vain. Or maybe you betrayed a, a friend and you feel guilty. Or maybe as hard as you try, you still say that, you still look at that. As hard as you try to keep that relationship together, in the end it led to something broken. Full confession time. I have pastor guilt. It's a thing. I feel guilty when I'm not at home with my family having the family time that I need or that my family wants, 
And while I'm at home with my family and my kids, I feel guilty that I'm not with the people that God has called me to shepherd and care for in their moments of need. And so I never feel like I'm doing either one of them super well. To be honest with you, uh, full confession, as a pastor, there are times where I know that like I'm a total, like I fell short. I'll give you one silly example. I was driving with a, a busload of kids because I was a youth and college pastor for a long time, and, and I was driving on the bus, and it was, um, it was like uh, in a snowstorm, and we were driving uh, back home after having been on a retreat in a snowstorm. Terrible decision-making, by the way, um, in a snowstorm for the weekend, and we were driving home, and it took like four hours, and um, I was getting off the bus, and there were a few people there, but it was, everything was slippery and icy and sleety, and I slipped, and you know how sometimes when you slip, words slip? Yeah? Well, it's not a good look for your pastor when words are flying and the kids are like, oh, did you hear what Pastor Dodger said? I was like, I did not say that. I confess freely my sins to you today. Oh, man. So we're going to look at... Um, we're going to look at a story that has to do with a little bit of guilt Luke chapter 23, and uh, it'll be on the screen, or you can follow along in your notes at wayfinders.info. Just click Kyle and click message notes, and you can follow along, and you can even write your own notes there. But Luke chapter 3 describes the last hours of Jesus's life on earth, and um, just to give you a bit of context, he's, he's killed as a king, but as a king, instead of wearing a golden throne, uh, a crown, he's wearing a crown of thorns. Instead of being surrounded by servants taking care of his every need, he's surrounded by thieves and criminals. Instead of sitting on a throne, he is hanging on a cross. And so we'll jump right in, verse 32 of chapter 23 of Luke, and I I'm going to quiz you in just a second in a math problem, so I need you to pay attention. Everybody ready? Okay. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. How many people were hanging on the cross? Three. 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 There was a three that went up. So how many people? Three. So we'll come back to that number in a little bit because it's important. If you don't know about death by crucifixion, I want to give you a picture of what that was like. Um, Death by crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. Criminals, slaves, it was considered to be the most painful physically and shameful spiritually way to die. It was also the most expensive form of torture known to mankind at that time. And uh, it was physically just brutal. In fact, the word excruciating comes from ex, meaning out of, cruciate, from the cross. So excruciating, that is of the cross type of pain. That's where that word actually comes from. And it was considered spiritually shameful because the scripture says, cursed are those who die on a tree. 
Meaning those are the people who have done irreparable damage, and so that's what has caused them to be on the cross. And so the process, the way that it works is they would start by stripping you naked and hanging you over something and then getting a whip like a cat of nine table tails or a, a whip that had pieces of glass and shards of, of metal woven into it. And they would give you 39 lashes, one below death. 40 is considered the death sentence. So 39 is like really close, but not quite. And typically during that time, the whipping would actually gouge out so much flesh and pieces of flesh that your ribs and your internal organs actually might be fully exposed and you would lose so much blood, you would lose consciousness and often go into a a serious state of shock. And they would leave you there until you recovered consciousness. And then once you were just conscious enough to be able to stand and move, you would have to carry your own cross to the place where they were doing the crucifixion. They would then drive seven-inch spike nails through your wrist in between the two bones there and in between your heels in your legs. And they would hang you. And on typically, the typical time frame is between two and four days you would be hanging there, suffering. And the only way you could breathe is if you pushed yourself up from your legs and the spire, so driving your weight down and pulling yourself up from your wrist, driving larger and larger holes in your body. And so people would die of pure exhaustion, of heat stroke, blood loss, and typically the number one they would die on the cross was through choking themselves to death, not being able to breathe anymore, running out of energy. If you were still alive on the fourth day, the guards, which would have been paid, four guards would have been paid to, to, to guard that, um, you would have been, had your legs beaten with clubs where they would break your knees and shins so that you could no longer take breaths as an act of mercy. It's a terrible, terrible, painful, shameful way to go. And while we are not sure what crimes these criminals committed, it's obviously pretty serious. And you would think as Jesus is hanging there that something would happen, but actually the crowds began to gather around and mock him and curse him and walk past and spit on his body as he's hanging there. And Jesus, at one point, you know, if I was hanging from the cross, he didn't say, God, Father, send your angels with swords of fire and wipe these people out. He didn't say, send your plagues and put boils on their faces so that they're permanently disfigured. Right? I might have done something like that. But Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. We'll jump forward to verse 
39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This arrogant, prideful, no fear of God, no need for mercy or grace or in need of a Savior, man hurled insults while he is hanging on his own death. Verse 40 says, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. We did this. It's an acknowledgement. We're getting what we deserve. Okay, so help me finish some of these phrases and sentences, okay? All right, you, I need your help here, so you got you to respond here. So I'll say the first part of the phrase. You guys finish it off. What comes around goes around. Great job. Um, your past will come back to haunt you. Oh, man, you guys know this. You make your bed, you got to lie in it or sleep in it. That's right. Um, they're all different ways to say the same thing. You get what you deserve. You get what you got coming. Um, part of me, by the way, the sick part of me, loves it when people get what they deserve. You know what I'm talking about? You're on the highway strolling, and this guy zooms past you and cuts you off like he's the only important thing on the road and that no one else matters, and he's going 90 and dangerous, and a couple miles up the road, wee, 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 and who do you see on the side of the road, and you know your face is like mine, ha, <laughs> sucker, you got caught. Come on, I'm not the only one who does it. Maybe I am. Uh, maybe I am the only one who does it. I I mean, I love that when it happens for other people, <laughs> right? But not when it happens to me. Part of me loves that sense of, <laughs> you got what you deserve. Verse 41, the criminal says, we're punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but... This man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here's what Jesus doesn't say in response. Jesus doesn't say, eh, too bad, sorry, never liked you, bro. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, um, Sorry, buddy, you're going to hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth forevermore in burning fire. I don't know if that's how Jesus talked. That probably is not how Jesus talked, but he didn't say that, right? He didn't say, I'm sorry, I could forgive a lot of people and a lot of things, but what you did, that's too far. You crossed the line. It's too late for you. No, he didn't say that. And here's who he said it to. The man hanging on the cross, let's think about this for a second. He was a thief who couldn't do anything to earn his standing with God. He was a criminal who couldn't walk the straight and narrow because his feet were fully bound to a tree. He was a thief 
who couldn't perform good works. His hands were tied. He was a criminal who couldn't turn over a new leaf because his life was ebbing in the balance. This was a criminal who couldn't join a church. He was already on his last day to live. This man could do absolutely nothing. And he turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says this. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Essentially, he says to the man who can't earn it, your sins are forgiven. Today, you're with me. You're with me. I got you. You're with me. You can't do anything about it. You can't earn it. You can't, you can't respond, but you, your sins are forgiven. You're with me. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute. That's not fair. Where's the justice? This man was guilty and deserved death. I don't know what he did, but obviously it was something. His story is my story. As I grew up in the church, but just because I was around the church didn't, didn't mean a whole lot. I was very good at putting on a face, knowing the right words to say, and not being connected to the Savior. So I was in church, and I was still a liar. I was in a church, and I still battled my own addictions. I was still in the church, and I had unkind and impure thoughts. I remember one day I had been in church for so long. It was the the day I decided to give my heart and life to Christ fully submitted. And I just remember the day that I woke up, and maybe you've had a similar experience. And if you haven't, it could be that you are destined for this type of experience. But I couldn't look myself in the mirror the right way. I didn't like or recognize or want what I saw. And what I felt was so numb and so dead on the inside with no hope and no joy and no full, uh, no full life And then, as if miraculously, I remembered these verses that we had read in church the day before. It's amazing how God works sometimes. This is from Ephesians chapter 2. It says, like the rest, like all of us, we were by nature, our sinful nature, deserving wrath. But because of his great love for us, our God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. You can do nothing about it. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What a powerful response. That's my story. And can you imagine just the scene? What if, and I know this didn't happen, but what if the guards overheard Jesus and this criminal who says, save us or remember me when I come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to this guilty thief and criminal and says, your sins are forgiven. You're with me. What if the guard said, oh, 
He's been, he's been uh, pardoned. He's good. So let's take him down. And over the course of a few years, the scars and, 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 and things in his physical body begin to heal. And years were added to his life. What do you think that criminal would devote every hour of his life to? To the man who gave him his life when he was dead. I, I just, this is my story because I was dead and then I became a new person. I was, I was dead and then I was alive and this is my story but this is our story. If you are found in Christ, this is our story. No amount of unworthy feeling, no amount of guilt, no amount of undeserving uh, matters because yet our lives are given back to us by the Savior. So he says, today you're with me. We opened up the service this morning with a quote from Psalm 103 that says, He does not punish us for our sins, and He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For His unfailing love towards those who fear Him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. This is a promise for each person it's interesting to me that it contrasts the two criminals. The one is hurling insults at Jesus, saying, aren't you supposed to be the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And the other one says, don't you understand? We're getting what we deserve, but this man was innocent. And he then has this crazy audacity to say, Jesus, I don't deserve it. But remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's just a powerful picture of what God does because we don't get what we deserve. We get better than we deserve. So how many people were hanging on the cross? Everybody say three. I want to have a little fun with you for a second. Um, when you go to seminary schools, they teach you this thing called numerology, which is the study of numbers and symbols and, and things like that within the Scripture and the meanings that it carries. And so, for instance, the, the number one stands for unity or oneness with God. The number four uh, represents the earth. The number five represents grace. The number seven represents perfection or, 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 or godliness. Number six is one less than perfection, which, uh, you know, represents mankind or the weakness of mankind, or in some cases, uh, evil, the evil one, you know, it's like 666, the, that idea of less than perfect. Number eight represents new beginnings. It's the start of a new week, a new day, a new dawn. The number 40 represents the number of testings and, and trials and, and what we go through when we're going through it all, when it all hits the fan. You know what I'm talking about. Well, the number three is the number for wholeness or completion. And so this is just, I've been working on this, so have a little fun with me because it may get 
a little crazy here in the middle of it. God is in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three. There's a triune nature to us. We are body, soul, and spirit. That's three. God is often described as being omniscient everywhere, or excuse me, all-knowing, omnipresent everywhere, and omnipotent, all-powerful. That's three. In Revelation, God is described as the one who was and is and is to come. Oftentimes, we talk about grace manifesting itself in three ways. Justification, meaning making ourselves right with God. Sanctification, making us holy with God and glorification, setting us apart for God's work. In the Old Testament, faith is considered to have three fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, had three sections, an outer court, an inner court, and a holy of holies. The angels cried out to God, according to Scripture, three times in their song that's repeated for eternity, holy, holy, holy. The prophet Daniel prayed three times a day. Jonah was in the belly of the giant fish for three days in the New Testament. There's 27 books that make it up. That's three times three times three. The apostle Paul in the New Testament was blinded for three days before he was healed and became empowered by the Holy Spirit. He prayed three times for the thorn in his side, the thing that ailed him to be taken away. He was stranded on the island of, of Malta for three months after being shipwrecked, turning this, the, the status of that island completely around. Jesus, when he was born, was visited by wise men who brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. At 12 years old, Jesus was separated from his parents for three days, spending time in the temple, preparing for what God had for him, and his public ministry lasted for three years. It started at 30 and ended when he was 33 years old. Jesus was tempted three times uh, by Satan in the desert. There were 12 disciples, but three were in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and they witnessed the transfiguration and they prayed with Jesus in the garden. In fact, it says that Peter denied Jesus after his death three times. And he, he did. And then Jesus expressed his, expressed his love and grace and restoration with three phrases back to him, which led to him being empowered to preach at the day of Pentecost fully embraced by God's Spirit, where 3,000 people came to know the good news. God spoke audibly to Jesus three times. Jesus raised three people from the dead, Lazarus, the widow's son, and Jairus' daughters. He prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane for the cup to go to someone else. Tradition says that while Jesus was carrying the cross, he fell three times, and he was one of how many who hung on the cross? Three times. Three men. On the sign hung above Jesus, it said, King of the Jews, and it was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He was placed on the cross at the third hour of the day. And at the ninth hour of the day, which was 3 p.m., he declared three words. It is finished. The earth trembled and darkness fell on the land for three 
hours. He was placed into the tomb, and the world waited. Day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. But on the third day, the stone was rolled away, and the tomb was empty, and Christ is risen. And that's why he gets called the way, the truth, and the life. I don't know what guilt, what feeling of unworthy or unlovableness or ashamedness that you carry or that you know someone is carrying, but it is as easy as turning to Jesus and saying, will you bring me into your kingdom? And Jesus says, you're with me. Your sins forgiven. He doesn't say you get what you deserve. He says you get better than you deserve. Ben's going to come up and, and they're going to sing with us. But what Jesus says on the cross screams, you don't get what you deserve, you get mercy and grace. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make bad people good. This isn't about just changing your uh, actions to be better. That's not what this is about. Jesus came and died on the cross to make dead people alive. Where there's no hope, where there is no joy, where there is no life, where there's no future, where all we carry is the weight of sin and brokenness and shame. He doesn't say you get what you deserve. You get better. He screams out, it's finished. Enough of that. Be done with it. You're with me. You know, mercy... Mercy is really where we don't get the bad or the punishment that we deserve. That's mercy. Not giving what someone deserves. You know what grace is? Getting the good and the blessing that we don't deserve. You and I don't need to walk around carrying our sin and shame and our brokenness. It's finished. We get grace and mercy, which in turn has a big question for us in how we see other people. Because many times it's easy for me to give myself the pardon and myself the mercy, myself the grace. Not as easy to give it away. And yet Jesus offers it freely to anyone who turns their face towards him and says, would you remember me? Maybe today you've never experienced that. And you've been trying to be a Christian and you've been trying to bootstrap it in your own power and you've been trying to do what's good and what's right and you're carrying all sorts of guilty feelings. You need to hear the powerful words of Jesus say, 
it's finished. And maybe you're holding on to a hurt. Maybe you're holding a crutch. Maybe you are completely justified in thinking about that person the way that you do because their actions render it. I got news for you, that's not our story. Our story is one where we get to give away mercy and grace because we have received it.